You can be seated. Amen and amen, church. That is our prayer. That the Lord would speak to us. The Lord would speak to us by his word. That the Lord would build his church by his word. That by his spirit we might become who Jesus is making us to be. Because like Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Amen? And every word that comes from the mouth of God is life-giving and life-shaping. And that's why this morning I'm excited that we are, we are beginning a new series that is going to take us actually through 12 weeks. And we've entitled this series, Gospel Culture. Because during the series, we're going to look at 12 biblical traits, 12 defining characteristics that are found in the scriptures that give life to and shape God's church. If you actually look at the, the graphic, if you've ever seen it in the, the email, e-news, or even on our website, you'll notice that all of the things we're going to be talking about are in, in those words. And so if you're wondering a, a preview of what we're going to be talking about, you can examine that graphic later. But we want to look at each of these biblical traits, the ones that we're putting in there, for, for three reasons. And here's, here's what I want to uh, kind of shape the whole sermon series based off of, right? So here are the three reasons. According to the Bible, number one, these 12 traits God's plan for what it means to be the church. Now, they're not the only things that show up in a church, but they are fundamental things. And for some of you, when we go through the series, they might be more of a, a, a reminder for you. And let's be honest, that's good because we need to be reminded regularly of who God has called us to be. But for others of you, this might be brand new, right? This might be your first time here at TVC, or maybe you're a new Christian. I'm glad that you're here, but if you're wondering what we're all about, this series, this is what it's going to be laying it out. Not just what we're all about, but what we're also working to be. That's reason number one. Number two is these 12 traits have historically been the way that the Lord has brought a spiritual renewal to his church. So if you examine the history of God's church, these 12 traits, historians and theologians looking at, at the times that the Lord has brought spiritual renewal to his church, these, these 12 traits have been present, been able to be identified whenever God has brought spiritual revival to his people. Now when I say that, I want to be crystal clear that we are not the ones who uh, generate or manipulate spiritual renewal. This isn't a, a plug and play in the life of the church. If we just get these things, it'll guarantee that God will move among us. God is the only one who brings spiritual renewal. We, can't, we don't force his hand. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, of him and another preacher, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, but God is the one who has been making it grow. We do what God says to do in his word, and then we depend on him to bring whatever growth and spiritual renewal he brings to us. And then the third reason, these 12 traits are not just the definition of a church according to the Bible. They're not just present whenever God has brought spiritual renewal to his people according to history. Number three, I am convinced that these 12 traits are identity markers that we have to hold on to in order to be faithful and fruitful in the middle of an increasingly anti-God society that we find ourselves in. And so for the next 12 Sundays, I want us to dive into these 12 biblical traits of God's church to see the why behind the what we do here as a church, and to realign ourselves together with God's priorities for his church. In particular, this Sunday and next Sunday, we're going to be looking at two fundamental traits from which all the other traits actually flow. For a faithful and fruitful church. And next Sunday, I want to argue for the centrality of the gospel as core to a faithful and fruitful church. And every other one of the, the, the ten uh, traits after those Two, those first two, flow out of those first two as, as what it means to be a biblical church. And so here is what I am trying to persuade you of this morning, whether for the first time or maybe as a reminder of what it means to be a faithful and fruitful church. 
is that the Bible is the foundation of a faithful and fruitful church because the Bible is our ultimate authority. By ultimate, I mean, I mean final, highest, supreme, right? Everything is weighed in the scales of Scripture, ever of Scripture. Everything is filtered through the lens of Scripture. Nothing is placed above the Scriptures in authority. Not church tradition, not, not, not scientific findings, not philosophical ideas. All of those have to be measured against, weighed by, and filtered through Scripture to see how they measure up to discern what is true, to to clarify what is not. Now, this does not mean that we uh, discard any philosophy or science. It's that we never give ultimate authority to them because the Bible is the only ultimate authority. Everything else submits to the authority of the Bible. Unfortunately, throughout history, humans, like you and I, have refused to submit to the authority of Scripture. I mean, even in our current historical moment, it is, it is no longer even just a refusal to submit. It is an eagerness to discard the Bible completely, questioning whether it is even relevant to a, a progressive or enlightened secular society like ours, doubting whether it is even remotely true in an advanced scientific society like ours. That mentality is not restricted even to society only. More and more Christians have become dismissive of the Bible. Or worse, we've been convinced that the, uh, just an extra devotional book that helps you feel better or get inspired rather than the authoritative revelation of God that must be obeyed. Theologian J.I. Packer in his foreword to R.C. Sproul's book, Knowing Scripture, writes this. He says, if I were the devil, I would do everything in my power to keep Christians from the Bible. It seems like the enemy has not only adopted that tactic, but successfully worked as a church here. Which is why this morning I want to persuade you, as a reminder, as an introduction, that the Bible must be our ultimate authority if we want to be a faithful and fruitful church in an increasingly anti-God society. That the Bible must be our ultimate authority if we want to experience the spiritual renewal God has for us as his people. And ultimately, the Bible must be our ultimate authority if we're going to be the church that God made us to be. And so to do all that, I want to ask and answer them according to the Bible, starting in Psalm 19, the text that we read earlier, and expanding out to some other key passages about what is this authoritative book we call the Bible. So here are our questions this morning. We'll start there. What is the Bible? Why do we need the Bible? Who is the Bible about? And how does the Bible shape us? What, why, who, and how? And at the end of this, my prayer is that you would not only be convinced that the Bible is our ultimate authority, but that it must also be the foundation of a biblical church if it is to be faithful and fruitful in our increasingly anti-God society. So let's start with that first question. What is the Bible? To answer that, Psalm 19 actually doesn't begin by, by opening up the Bible, but actually opening up the book of creation. Look at the text. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. This is the Psalm of David. Right, The most famous poet of God's people, David, he begins this psalm with his eyes raised to the sky, calling us to do the same and telling us, don't you see? Can't can't you hear? The heavens are declaring, they're they're describing, they're they're rehearsing over and over again the glory of God. The the skies, they're, they're proclaiming, they're announcing, they're telling everybody about his handiwork. David the poet, translating for us the feeling we get, when we are standing speechless in God's creation. 
right? He's explaining that though we might be speechless before the Grand Canyon or, or Niagara Falls or, or even a sunset painting the sky with, with more colors than we could ever imagine, even though we might be speechless, creation is communicating. David continues in verse 2, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet, their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. David describes the testimony of creation as constant. Day after day after day, night after night after night, communicating and revealing without words, and yet their testimony actually reaches absolutely everyone. From the power of a thunderstorm to the brilliance of a rainbow, the skies leave us without a doubt that there is a God. Look back at the text. David focuses our attention in particular in the sky to one object of God's creation, the sun, right? He writes, in the heaven, God has pitched a tent for the sun. And then he starts to try to describe it. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens, makes its circuit to the other, and nothing is deprived of its warmth. David is using provocative imagery to translate the testimony of the sun. Even this powerful object, with its heat and its seemingly limitless reach, is under the command of God, created by God, limited by God, rejoicing in its obedience to God. Is there a God? Creation screams, yes. The, the, the question is whether or not we will accept creation's testimony or try to drown it out by any means necessary. The famous Christian writer C.S. Lewis uh, published an essay in his Christian Reflections, and, and the essay is actually a response to uh, a Russian astronaut's claim. C.S. Lewis, he writes this. He says, the Russians, I am told, report that they have not found God in outer space. A little bit further down, after some argumentation, he explains why they didn't find God out there. He says, in our time and place, avoiding God is extremely easy. Avoid silence, avoid solitude, avoid any train of thought that, that leads off the beaten track. Concentrate on money, sex, status, health, and above all, on your own grievances. Keep the radio on. Or Netflix. Live in a crowd. Use plenty of sedation. If you must read books, select them very carefully. But you'd probably be safer to stick to the papers. You'll find the advertisements there helpful, especially with a, a sexy or a snobbish appeal. He continues, and this is his point. To some, God is discoverable everywhere. To others, nowhere. Those who do not find him on earth are unlikely to find him in space. But, but send a saint up in a spaceship, and he'll find God in space as he found God on earth. Much depends on the seeing eye. You see, there, uh, according to, to, to Lewis, there are all kinds of ways to avoid God. And, and Scripture talks about a lot of these different ways, even in the stories that it gives us. The, the ways to try and, and, and turn down the volume of the testimony of creation. But that does not mean that God is not there and that God is not communicating. Romans 1 explains this a lot more clearly even than C.S. Lewis explains. That the problem is not that creation's testimony is unclear. It's that humanity suppresses the truth by our wickedness. Right? Like Lewis said, much depends on the seeing eye. On, on having eyes that can see, ears that can hear. Of taking your hands off your eyes and your, your hands away from your ears in order to see and hear the testimony that shines brightly across the sky every single day. Now, creation... 
If, if you've ever uh, taken a walk in a particularly beautiful area or, or taken a hike in, in the mountains or anything like that, uh, creation has this, this really uh, wonderful way of helping us grow. It resonates with us deeply because it touches a, a part of us as the ones who bear the image of God, of the creator. But even for all this beauty, creation is limited in its testimony because we refuse to hear it. David explains creation doesn't have a voice or words, but that does not keep creation from testifying. It keeps us from hearing creation clearly. Look at the beginning of David's poem again. The heavens declare the glory of God. If you notice in these first six verses, there's only one uh, mention of God. And David actually uses a, 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 the generic Hebrew word for God, El or Elohim, to explain that yes, creation testifies, but it testifies that there is a God. We need something that bypasses our sin and clarifies the message if we are to know this God. We need something that reveals who he is and what he's like. Which is why David then turns in verse 7 almost abruptly to the clarifying testimony of the Bible. Look at the text. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The, the commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Did you notice one of the changes that David makes here? Is it just the, the generic name for God, El Elohim, but Lord in all caps? And, and if you've been here for a while, you know what that means. In all caps, Lord means the personal name of God, the covenant name of God, the name Yahweh. I am who I am. And creation testifies to God, but David here poetically argues that we need the Bible to reveal who, that he's not just the generic God, but he is Yahweh, the one true God who wants to be in relationship with us. The only way we can know the God that creation is pointing us to is if God himself breaks through our sinful suppression and reveals himself to us. Creation points to the existence of a God. The Bible reveals the character and nature of that God. The God who can be known. The God who speaks, who, who wants to be in relationship to us. And this is what makes the Bible the ultimate. Look at this poetic description in these verse 7 through 9. Track with me as I, as I work through all of them. The, the Bible reveals God's perfect justice. That refreshes or, or, or revives us. That's the language of spiritual renewal. And perfect meaning that the, the Bible stands together to hold it up. The Bible reveals his trustworthy testimony that makes us wise. Trustworthy meaning verifiable, re reliable, without error, entirely to be trusted. The Bible reveals his precise guidelines and authoritative commands that, that make our heart rejoice and, and, and open our eyes to what is right, true, and good. In words, the Bible delights us and orients us to reality away from the deception of sin. The Bible reveals the God who is worthy of worship. The word fear there is a word about reverence of worship. It is a revelation that actually endures forever, which means it has no expiration date. And forever, it is a firm foundation for us. Every single word righteous and dependable, trustworthy and holy. All because the creator who made everything and everyone wants to be known for more than just beautiful artwork in the sky, but for his intimate relationship with his image bearers. A holy, righteous, and life-giving relationship. Notice the nouns in this description. 
all these verses, there's, there's, and that's why I listed it kind of the way that it is so you can see all the comparisons, right? The, the language that David uses here is law and statutes and precepts and commands and fear and decrees. It, 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 even just listing that out, I feel heavy, right? Those words tend to be negative in our mind, maybe heavier than we normally think. But I want you to see that David very, I mean, beautifully and poetically sets up the name that we're talking about, this personal name of God, Lord, Yahweh, in between that word and what it does and how beautiful it is. That those words filtered through the relationship of our Lord become perfect and trustworthy and right and radiant and pure and firm. They refresh the soul. They make wise the simple. They give us. The Bible is so often misunderstood as, as, as heavy-handed and, and negative, empty of joy and love and it's not hard to see why if you're reading through law after law of a holy God and, and story after story of punishment when humanity disobeys, disconnected from that God. The solution is not to avoid or discard these laws or these stories, as many have done in an attempt to uh, make the Bible more relevant or easier to swallow. No, the solution is to read and experience the Bible in relationship with the God who wrote it. The work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer as well in the church as well as in the church, illuminates the Bible and changes our hearts. And we read words like law and God's love for us. This is why David can describe God's revelation in the Bible like this. Because he knows the God that creation points to. The God that has revealed himself in his word. He actually has a relationship with him and that changes everything. Laws and commands and things like that, that hit us as if they're negative and weigh us down now become avenues of life that the Lord has given us by his spirit. Look at the next verse, verse 10. They're more precious than gold. They're much pure gold. They're, they're sweeter than honey, than, than honey from the honeycomb. I don't even need an illustration to describe what we're dealing with right now, right? How relationship changes our experience of the Bible. David gives this illustration right here. More precious than pure gold, sweeter than honey straight from the honeycomb. Infinite in value. True joy. Relationship with the one true God makes the Bible of more value than, than all of the money in our bank accounts and our retirement funds, more and more valuable than all of our assets combined, more valuable than all the money we wish we had. Relationship with the one true God makes the Bible uh, 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 this, this infinite value because it tells us how we can actually connect with the God who made us. And relationship with the true God also makes the Bible the source of more joy than uh, I was trying to think of a, a modern illustration. The closest thing I could think of is then the sweetest dessert on your cheat day. Do any of you have those? No, you guys are really good about that. The reason it, it is so sweet, the reason David is trying to choose the sweetest he can pick at this time is because it is, the Bible is the only way where we can actually enjoy relationship with God. Without the Bible, we cannot know what he is like. All right, I'll give you an example, right? We, with storms, they, they'll communicate God's awesome power, and then we'll turn and see a flower, and it communicates God's delicate care. And the question might come to your mind, well, well is God both? Is he powerful some of the time and, and caring the rest of the time? Is his power as arbitrary as this storm, as this flower, because it eventually will die? Well, the Bible is the only way we can know that God is actually indeed powerful, but never irrational. And God is indeed caring forever, not temporarily. It explains, it translates creation for us. So what is the Bible? The Bible is God revealing who he is and what he's like. It is God speaking to his image bearers, not just so that they have more information, but so that they might be in true and right relationship with him. The Bible is the decisive evidence that God speaks and because of what it is. 
the self-revelation of the one true God who made and rules everything. And yet, the existence of the Bible assumes something about us. Something that I've already mentioned, but I want to step into a little bit further with our second question. Because you see, the existence of the Bible assumes we need the Bible to reveal God to us. And why is that? Why do we need the Bible? We've already talked about it because of sin. Psalm 19, 11 through 13 explains it like this. By them, talking about the, the, the scriptures, all the different descriptions that, that David gave of God's word. By them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. In a poetic way, David lays out the reason that we need the Bible by describing the effect of the Bible in his life as a warning. Or to put it another way, he uses the word of discernment. David asks a rhetorical question. Who can discern their own errors? The answer to his rhetorical question is clearly no, because he follows up immediately asking God to forgive him. Who can discern their own errors? Who can see themselves accurately? No one can without the Bible. Why? Because, like David is talking about, we have hidden faults and willful sins. The Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner uh, is explaining hidden faults, and, and, and he writes that, that it's not just the, the, the sins that we're trying to, to hide ourselves. It's actually, maybe more closely, the sins that have become too characteristic to register. Who can discern their own errors? None of us can. It's in too deep, and it's become too regular in our lives to see it for the rebellion and the disobedience that it is. And then comes the willful sins. Right? Those sins that we know are sins and we still indulge because we're twisted in on ourselves. We're selfish. We're focused on me, myself, and I and what I want. And that's not the way to life. That's why David asked God, may they not rule over me. Because like he talks about, if sin does not rule, then, then, then he'll be blameless. He'll be innocent. Not, not perfect. This isn't the language of sinlessness completely, but it's, a, it's the language of integrity. He is aligned with God and the way he made the world. He is wholly distorted by the sin that has unmade him. There's a story in Genesis that actually illustrates why David is asking God this particular phrase, right? It's a little bit unusual. He says, may they not rule over me. Kind of, where did you get that, David? And, and I think it comes back, for, uh, is at least informed by the story back in Genesis 4, where we see the first act of sin outside of the garden. After Adam and Eve rebelled and introduced sin into creation, sin rears its ugly head again in their children, Cain and Abel. And the story goes like this. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. That is the same kind of language that David is using in Psalm 19. You see, sin is not just something that we do. It is an enemy that wants to take us, that wants to have us, that wants to destroy us. God's word tells us to rule over it. So David is not asking something of God that is new. He's asking, the God, uh, asking God to enable what he's already commanded. 
Cain, you must rule over sin. So David goes, God, may, may sin not rule over me. You see, Cain receives this command directly from the Lord, where God reveals to him what is going on and what he must do. But David, on the other hand, is responding to God's revelation in his word. Remember, he already said, by them your servant is warned. And so he's asking for help, because he's already been warned about what sin is trying to do. We need God to reveal himself to us and tell us the truth about himself, about us and the world, because we, we, we can't, simply cannot see the way we are working our own destruction by our sin. Because the only good and true rule is under the good and true king, not the slave master called sin. And the question will not be, will you be ruled, but what will you be ruled by? So to put all of Psalm 19 up to this point together to answer the the second question we have here, why do we need the Bible? Because as creatures, we need to know our creator, and more importantly, as sinners, we need to know our savior. Sin is destroying us, and we can't even find the life we need because sin is also separating us from God. It is because of sin that we need the Bible because sin is actively trying to keep us from knowing God. And so God must break through and reveal himself, not just to creatures who need to know their creators, but sinners who need to know their Savior. The Bible is our ultimate authority, not just because God is the one speaking, but because we also so desperately need it. It is the only way we can be saved. By knowing the God of the Bible and believing he is who he says he is and has done what he said he would do. The Bible is God's revelation about who he is and what he's like. And we need it as creatures to know our creator and as sinners to know our savior. But that also kind of brings us to a third question. Another question that I think is important for us to consider if we're going to be convinced of the ultimate authority of the Bible. Who is the Bible about? Right? After all, if the Bible is really about us, about God, yes, but, but really about us and our rescue from sin, then maybe we are more important and authoritative than we thought. At least if we think this way. But TVC, make no mistake, the Bible is not about us. In other words, we are not at the center of the Bible. The final verse in Psalm 19 begins to point at this when David closes his poem with the final request after all that he has described about creation and the Bible. And he says this, May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This final verse is the surprise of Psalm 19. And I say that because you would think that David, by the end of describing this God he's talking about and, and the laws and, and, and the fear of the Lord, even though there, there's good things about it, but there, there's still commands, you would think he would end by talking about God as judge. But that's not where David ends. You see, David's personal and covenantal relationship with God is still at work because God has revealed himself in his word. And David knows that God is not just a judge, but is also his rock and his redeemer. His, his safety and his security, the God who shelters him and calls him his own. And so he makes this, this eye-opening request to his rock and his redeemer. He asks God to make what he says and what he meditates on pleasing. And the reason I think it's eye-opening is because that word pleasing could also be translated as acceptable. It is the language of sacrifice. Sacrifices that were intended to demonstrate the holiness of God and the sin of his people. This is the same language that gets used over and over again in law, describing the sacrifices that God's people must make in order to be with a holy God. These sacrifices were intended to communicate that the only way to be in relationship with God is if something, something else, takes the punishment of death for sin. 
Now, we read later in Hebrews that these sacrifices could not actually take away sin, but that they were pointing towards the one who was coming that could actually take away sin. They, 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 they weren't just pointing to God. They were, God was actually accepting them conditionally, Hebrews explains, on the condition of what would happen when Jesus came. So what can make David acceptable to God? What can make us acceptable to God? Not a what, but a who. The one who is at the center of the Bible. We have a kid's Bible in uh, my home called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And the tagline of that Bible is essentially uh, summarizing everything that I want to communicate in this one point. Every story whispers his name. Because he, Jesus, is the one who fully reveals God to us. This God-man Jesus. John 1.1 describes him like this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later in that chapter, just a few verses down, John explains why he calls Jesus the Word. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, being Jesus, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus, God become human, explains God to us. He is God's message to us. The Bible is the written message of God to us. Jesus is the flesh and blood message of God to us. In other words, everything that the Bible reveals to us about God is seen in the per- work of Jesus. And the scriptures tell us that he is the only one who makes us acceptable, pleasing to God by his sacrifice. We actually read also in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2, talking about Jesus in the Bible. It says, in the past... God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Meaning, God spoke to the prophets in bits and in pieces, but now in a complete way, he has spoke. God took on human flesh and became Jesus, the God-man. The Bible is not just another book. It is God's revelation. But it's not just God's revelation meant to give us information. It is also meant to create relationship with us by the person and work of Jesus. Hebrews 4.12 explains that the Bible, the, the word of God, is living and active. And then Jesus talking to these religious leaders in John 5.39 says that the Bible gives eternal life because it testifies to him. So who is the Bible about? The Bible is about Jesus. We are not at the center. Jesus is, and every story is meant for, not meant just for, uh, for things like our inspiration or, or feel-good positive vibes, but to call us to worship and humbly submit to the one who gave his life for us and came back to life for us and gives us new life by faith in him. It is about what it means to live in his kingdom when we have been trying to build our own kingdoms for so long. But our kingdoms are built on weak foundations eroded by sin. The only thing that will make us whole again and live the life we were made to live is submitting ourselves to him and believing that what he says is really true, that he is who he says he is, and that he has done what he said he would do, and that someday he will fulfill all of his promises. The Bible is about Jesus. But I also want to be pretty clear that it's also for us. Because he loves us enough to tell us that he is in, he, he, he is uh, working to reconnect us with him in the person and work of Jesus, right? So it's centered on Jesus, but it is actually for us. Every single word is good for us. None of it is something that we can uh, just ignore or assume or pretend that doesn't apply to me. All of it applies to us. 
The Bible is our ultimate authority because it reveals the one true God for us. The Bible is our ultimate authority because as creatures we need to know our creator, as sinners we need to know our savior. And the Bible is our ultimate authority because it holds out to us the object of our faith. It is all about Jesus, the savior we so desperately need and the creator who can tell us who we are and why he made us. Which is why next week we're going to look at that second fundamental trait of a biblical church. The centrality of the gospel as core for a faithful and fruitful church. But we have to start here because we only know the gospel because God has revealed it to us in the Bible. And the Bible is the foundation of a faithful and fruitful church only when we believe and live out that belief that the Bible is the ultimate authority. Which leads me to my final question. How does the Bible shape us? How does believing this is true change the way we live as a church? Well, I want to start answering that by actually going to a a different passage of Scripture, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. In this passage, Paul is explaining to one of his disciples, Timothy, who had the responsibility of leading the church in Ephesus, who was one of the, the preacher pastors there. And he's explaining to him how the Bible shapes God's people. And he writes this. He says, but as for you, talking to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Not just things you learn from people, but the Holy Scriptures, Paul writes, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The Bible, first and foremost, shapes God's church by creating the church in the first place. Uh, Saving people through faith in Christ Jesus. By believing in the Jesus that the Bible reveals to us. The reason I'm stopping here, before going on to the next verse, which is even more famous, talking about the Scriptures, and we'll get to that. Is because some people have twisted thinking that the Bible is actually a creation of the church. That the Bible is determined by the church and that is merely a human invention. But as I've already tried to argue, the Bible is not something human. It's, It's God revealing himself to us. But let me go a little bit further with this particular point. I'll have you jump to this other passage. I know I'm jumping around a little bit. But to explain this, 2 Peter 1, 20-21 tells us this. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's not like humans made this up according to their own imaginations. No, the Holy Spirit worked through the personality and the style of human authors to speak to humanity. What we have in the Bible is perfect, without error, and entirely God's word. None of it is, is uh, supplemented by the ideas of the writers or, or added as some kind of uh, appendix to clarify what God was saying. God used humans to write his word. And this is what, what Christians have been calling verbal plenary inspiration. To translate that very weird phrase... One pastor describes it like this. God used the personalities and writing styles of the human authors to communicate, right? So this is the inspiration part, entirely as he intended. That word inspired, if you, I like words, so I'm going to do this. If you don't like words, you can tune me out right now. That word inspired simply means to breathe in, right? It's the same root word as the word respiration that we use for breathing. And so when someone says they were inspired, They mean that something drove them to to something creative, right? Almost like creativity was in the air. But when Christians use that word, they have a much deeper meaning when they say the Bible is inspired. And it comes from the next two verses of that 2 Timothy passage. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired, breathed in. 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God breathed, inspired by God, carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter. In other words, the Bible is a supernatural book written through natural creatures by the supernatural God who is revealing who he is and what he is like. And as a God-breathed book, 2 Timothy tells us that the Bible is useful for, is intended to teach, rebuke, correct, train in righteousness. It is, it is meant to communicate about God. It is meant to, to combat error. It is meant to restore truth and to discipline, to in, instruct the Christian in what it means to live a life, a right life before God. And when I say right, I mean that, that a life that is aligned with God, that it is according to how the creator and the king has made us and commanded us to all of this so that, in Paul's case, Timothy the preacher and those he preaches it to, but then us today here and, and those that these, these preachers that are up here are preaching to you and, and, and I'm receiving as well, that we would all have everything necessary to accomplish God's purposes, to, to do the good works he has given us to do. So how does the Bible shape us? It shapes us by aligning us to the way that God made the world to work. It, it shapes us by telling us who he saved us to be, how he plans to, to make us into that by his spirit. To get specific here, and, and finally, to get why we started here as a foundational trait of a biblical church. How does the Bible shape us here as a church? The Bible shapes us as our ultimate authority for why we do what we do as a church. This is why here at TBC and across our Wheaton Bible Church family, we preach and teach the Bible. Why we go through books of the Bible together as a regular part of our diet on Sunday mornings as Christians. It's why even when we preach topics, we are always anchoring those topics in the Bible. We don't just talk about what other people have to say about those topics. Other voices can be insightful, but like we talked about at the beginning, the Bible is our ultimate authority, and everything is measured against that, weighed in its scales, and filtered through its lens. This is why we have a, a, a preaching team approach. So you don't get caught up thinking that it's my voice here. So that all these different preachers come up here, and you know that the same source of the sermon is the scriptures. Even if they're using a southern twang like Josh Laxton, or a Colombian accent like Hannibal. The source of the sermon never changes. It is always the Bible. It's why we here at TBC have, have things like men's and women's Bible studies. Because we believe that the Bible is crucial to life as a Christian, to, to life as a church. That's why we, we call you to join those Bible studies. Which you, if you haven't done, please see me afterwards. I would love to help you get connected, men's and women's. It's why we have invited our entire church over the last two years, he, different times in the services, there's this reading plan that we're doing as an entire church and we point it out every so often. And, and if you're don't have a reading plan this year, and you haven't been reading your Bible, I want to invite you into that as well. If you just go to our website and you search 2022 Bible reading plan, it's there. Because we believe that the Bible is our lifeblood. It is foundational for everything we do, and so we're calling everybody to read the Bible together. It's why the supremacy of the scriptures is our first sermon in this series, because like I've said, all the other traits that we are looking at, they're filtered through this lens. From how we worship, to who leads the church, to all of it has to be filtered through the Bible. This is why even in our kids' life classrooms, the kids are going through the Bible. Because the Bible is our ultimate authority and we believe what it says. That it gives us everything we need to live lives that are pleasing to God. Like David prays in Psalm 19. I was talking to Hannibal about this. He's preaching at West Chicago and he lays at the polo this morning. And he reminded me of something that I actually used to wrestle with a lot when I was growing up. And something that I think a lot of us, if you grew up in church or anything, have wrestled with. It's even something that this, this past week at our Wheaton Bible Church staff lunch where all the people that, that work and serve in different um, 
uh, on staff get together for lunch. One of our teammates shared her testimony. She talked about this very thing. Sometimes we might look at our testimonies and we might think, uh, might, might even be embarrassed because we think that they're, they're boring. They don't have some dramatic story of sin that the Lord saved us from. Now, there might be some of us that have been saved in a dramatic way, and we praise God for that, the way he, he pulled you out of that pit. But for some of us, you grew up in church, you learned about the Bible, and then God saved you like it is your story, and it just kind of feels boring. What this team member shared when she shared her testimony, what Hannibal reminded me of, and, and I've come to know of my own story, is that boring is actually grace. Boring means that God kept you from all kinds of sin. Boring does not mean you don't desperately need the grace of God to save you. It means that God graciously kept you until the grace of God saved you. Hannibal, Hannibal put it to me a little bit more provocatively when he said, I want our kids to have boring testimonies. This is why kids go through Bible in, in the classrooms. Because when the Bible is taught in a community of people who love God and, and love them, we pray that God will give them boring testimonies, that he will graciously keep them until he graciously saves them. There are no guarantees, but if... Uh, the Bible shows us who God is and what he's like. When we teach the Bible, it's almost like we're laying firewood around children. When we teach the Bible from the stage, it's almost like we're laying firewood around the hearts of people here. It, it, it's in a, the Bible study. We're laying firewood around our hearts, and we pray that the Spirit would light it with grace and with love and an eye-opening experience of his mercy. And so as we move into the future of what God has for us as a church, I want us to remember and to recommit to the supremacy. We want to let the Bible tell us who we are. We want to believe and live out the belief that the Bible is our ultimate authority. The why behind what we do as a church family. And we want to pray like David prayed. Like I pray often before I preach. That the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in the sight of the Lord, our rock and our redeemer. That everything we do would be pleasing to him, acceptable to him. Because we have aligned ourselves with the Bible. Humbly submitted to the ultimate authority of the Bible. And centered our lives on the Jesus that the Bible points us to. This is what I want for us as a church as we move forward. And this is what I want to invite you now in this moment to pray with me together about as a church family. Would you pray? God, you've revealed yourself to us in creation, in your word and fully in Jesus. And this morning, we pray that our lives would be a testimony to your rule instead of the rule of sin because we as a church have submitted to the authority of your word. Would you help us when your word convicts us and we struggle to obey? Would you encourage us when, when pain and suffering draw us back to your word for encouragement, even while we struggle with the reality of sin's brokenness? Would you remind us and empower us to keep in step with your spirit by aligning ourselves with your word? Would you teach us, rebuke us, correct us, and train us in righteousness, equipping us individually, yes, but also collectively as your church for every good work by your word? Lord, we confess that we've not always followed your word, that we've been tempted to, to follow uh, practical strategies rather than the clear teaching of your word, that we've been tempted to follow our own ways, and we confess that we especially struggle when your word confronts us with our sin. We confess that we don't always enjoy the conviction or challenge of your word, but we know, we trust, we believe that your word is good and that your word is life-giving while sin is life-taking. And so we pray that we would not be deluded by sin, that we would be enlightened by the truth of your word. We confess and we entrust ourselves to the grace and mercy that is in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we pray again that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.